0: This is E2B, Energy to Business, a podcast by OPPORTUNE, where we bring you in-house expertise that serves all energy sectors. We examine emerging financial and technology trends and provide a broad perspective on ways to stay ahead, create opportunities and execute market strategies. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of E2B, Energy to Business, an opportune podcast. I'm your host, Daniel Litwin, the voice of B2B. And folks, thanks so much for joining us on another episode of the show as we continue to explore major trends, technologies, and start the most important conversations for the larger energy and oil and gas industries. Now, as we dig into today's conversation and uh, highlight some actionable strategies for your cybersecurity, which I'll get into here in a little bit, I want to make sure you're all caught up on previous episodes of the show, as well as uh, have access to more opportune research and content. So make sure that you're heading to our website, opportune.com. Again, that's opportune.com. Dot com. You'll find previous episodes of the show on there. You'll also find research, white papers, and more information on our solutions and services, but then also more pieces of content from the Opportune team, including videos, articles, blogs, and more. You can also subscribe to Energy to Business on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. So just hit that subscribe button. You'll have a full catalog of previous conversations plus notifications when we drop new episodes. So like I teased, today's episode is a focus on cybersecurity strategies for the oil and gas industry. Now we're bringing this up coming off of some major federal calls or alarms being sounded from Biden and from others in the administration about the potential of mounting cyber attacks from Russia. Now, before everyone gets stressed out, we haven't seen any cyber attacks just yet from Russia in the context of the current geopolitical context. But even without a geopolitical context or federal warnings, the oil and gas industry had a major wake-up call about the weakness of its cyber infrastructure almost a year ago, when hackers held the Colonial Pipeline ransom for over $4 million. And that, as we were aware, created shortages, fuel price hikes, and general market uncertainty. So have cybersecurity strategies changed fundamentally at all since then? Recent reporting is sounding its own alarms that no, the industry is not really that much more prepared for attacks like the one on Colonial. And the oil and gas sector is especially vulnerable due to a lack of federal cybersecurity standards, at least compared to the power sector or utilities. And there's some great reporting on this from The Hill, but a fresh December bill is actually hoping to change some of those standards. It's aiming to direct the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission to create some, quote, much-needed mandatory cybersecurity standards for the oil and gas industry, which is exciting and definitely something we should be keeping an eye on. But while the industry waits for federal standards to materialize, there's got to be some action that anyone can start to take now, right? So we wanted to pose the question and give you some answers on what can oil and gas companies do now to invest in better cybersecurity solutions, strategies, supplemental resources, and partnerships. So let's go ahead and dig into the conversation today. I'm pleased to welcome our two guests. First up, we're joined by Glenn Hartfield. He's a principal at Opportune. Glenn how you doing?
1: Doing good, Daniel.
0: How you doing? Doing great. Thanks so much for joining us. And we're also joined by Mr. Jeff Yutt. He's a process and technology consultant at Opportune. Jeff, great to have you on as well. How are you?
2: Doing good. Can't complain. Hey,
0: eh, love it. There's always something to be keeping us busy, and I'm sure on y'all's end, especially with the kind of current state of the U.S. oil and gas market, there's plenty on your plate. So I appreciate you taking some time to chat with us and talk cybersecurity strategies. So like I mentioned, we're in the midst of this crisis in Ukraine, which has IT professionals and enterprise decision makers clamoring about cybersecurity. It's back kind of front of mind. So in your opinion, how is the current war heightening cybersecurity awareness or what can companies do to be better prepared and maybe mitigate their risk of future cyber attacks? Give us your initial thoughts there.
1: So my thoughts are on this is that you know this this kind of brings it to the front page of every newspaper out there but i mean the cyber attacks have been going on for years whether it be malware attacks or you know ransomware attacks you know that's it's it just i think it helps promote and at least give companies a background of why they need to invest in some cybersecurity resources you know and things that we have done for clients have been putting in you know things like multi-factor authentication you know to kind of ensure that it's not It's not very easy just to kind of, you know, use a basic password to get in the environment. But, you know, I think today, if if you're talking about Russia itself, where you're not talking about a ransomware attack where it's for money, it's a government entity that wants to attack for, you know, kind of, you know, payback for the sanctions or whatever it may be. That makes it a little bit more scary because it's going to be a little harder to guard against those attacks when you have a country going after your infrastructure and potentially take out some of the
0: grid. Jeff, any thoughts from you on that one?
2: Yeah, I think it's important to remember that firms can't protect what they don't know that they have. So it's important to regularly assess your attack surface and evaluate your exposure to cyber risk through those third-party connections or vendors. And that looks like defining a standard for normal activity and regularly
1: reviewing active logs for anything that falls outside of those bounds. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Daniel, one other thing, I guess, with, you know, since it is a you know, you're dealing with the Russian state here is one of the things that we've implemented at some clients that have the capability to do it is geo blocking IP addresses that originate outside the United States. So that actually helps with some things, but it doesn't prevent somebody from going through an IP based, you know, IP address to a hack, you know, resources in the US, but it does help. I also think it's worth
2: noting that while the current climate in Eastern Europe it like has certainly increased, you know, a sense of urgency for firms to harden their systems. These recommendations are not new. These, you know, these activities that the that nation state malicious actors have, you know, have been conducting for years have heightened awareness in the last five ten years.
0: Yep. Now, as a quick follow up to that, because you know, heightened cybersecurity awareness in the current yeah. geopolitical context right. brings in really anyone with an enterprise level bounty to be, to be taken, right? Or some, you know, booty, right, for cyber pirates out there to nab. But I want to hone in on energy sector players specifically, right? How does the current context relate back to energy sector players? Or is there anything more specific about how the geopolitical context could target energy players compared to other enterprises?
1: Well, I think with the, the current, I mean, if we look back to a couple of years ago, China actually did hack into Australia's grid. And I think they were minutes away from actually shutting down, you know, a power plant, I think that served about a million and a half to 3 billion customers. And I think they, they did that by separating their office network from their, their operational network. So, you know, you have that kind of attack, you have, you know, China who's hacked into India's grid and taken out parts of their grid. And I think with this one, with the with the current state of Russia does decide to come after us, I think they're gonna do it in order to scare people. And I think the a good way to scare people, one, is you know, if they take out a power grid, the news is gonna be all over it, right? So if somebody loses power, you know, good thing it's 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 springtime, so it's not the dead of winter, so people aren't gonna necessarily freeze to death, but you know, there is an issue there that it will scare people enough that it will make the news and it will become a major issue across the board from a news event. And I think another
2: you know thing of note is outside of the private sector there are these government organizations that have their hands in the energy industry and they have been very popular targets in the last you know 5 years these these agencies typically house critical sensitive information they are don't have the bandwidth or the resources or the budget to combat these threats as effectively as organizations in the private sector might there's a huge reliance on third party vendors and contractors within this space making them you know an even easier target as we've seen with you know attacks like solar winds or like microsoft exchange
0: so let's hone in even more on the energy sector if you had to say or i guess make a, an assessment of current challenges what would you say are the most pressing challenges that are facing the energy sector and more specifically are there key you know, subsectors within the larger energy industry that are experiencing increased threats and challenges of cybersecurity.
1: Yeah, I think, as Jeff said, you know, a lot of it's going to be around budgets. You know, I don't don't think anybody's come up with a magic bullet to say, you know, we're going to increase our budget just because of the Russia, you know, concern with with the Ukrainian uh, Act. But, you know, the the problem they're going to have is, is that, you know, it's a little too late to be implementing it right now. You know, some of these enterprises are very large. They may not have the resources or the funding to put in multi-factor authentication or, you know, harder environments. And I can tell you, a lot of utilities run a lot of old equipment. Personally, I do a lot of power plant conversions and we do a lot of upgrades when we do the conversions, but there's still a lot of aging equipment at these locations. And, you know, you just can't upgrade that in a short period of time. I mean, it it takes, you know, at least 12 months probably to do upgrades and, and not cause any major impacts. And a lot of those you have to schedule with the, you know, the electrical, like the ISOs and the real-time operators to to do those upgrades. So, you know, it, it's going to be hard to make major changes right now. It's going to be something that they're going to have to bake into a budget going forward, you know, over a period of time.
0: Well, what's exciting about sitting down with both of y'all is that Opportune part of its solutions package is advising many clients in the energy sector on how to defend against cyber attacks before we get into some of the best practices can y'all just sort of rehash or remind our audience what your experience is in this sector right what are some of the actual things that opportune advises on how does it work with clients to develop these strategies
1: so what what i focus on is and, and i've got 30 years in the it industry have run you know security teams for large organizations Uh, I also handled the server and network groups for large utilities, you know, in the power generation business and and in prior lifetimes. So a lot of the focus I deal with is clients who buy assets from other sellers. So Opportune will go in and advise and not only advise, but also actually perform the acquisitions and transitions for power plants across the country. You know, and, and in doing that, we set them up as, you know, as operating units, with new hardware, new software, you know, and then kind of advise them, Hey, these are the things you need to focus on because some of this equipment's quite old and, you know, they look at at adding those projects into future year budgets. So, you know, some of that stuff is you have Microsoft servers that, you know, you literally have, they kind of keep pushing you off the cliff. So the newest one to release was server 2022. And, you know, and and we're not quite ready to roll that out, but we just did one with a server 2019. But, you know, there are clients that still run 2008 R2 and that's end of life, no longer supported. So those have to be updated. And the challenge is, is, you know, sometimes those are control systems and, you know, it's not an easy process, but you do have to plan for that and do that over a period of time because you no longer have support and security updates on those servers, which makes them a target if somebody were to get into your network.
0: And then Jeff, same question for you. How about on your end, being a process and technology consultant, what are some of the things that you do consult on? I guess at a high level, what do those conversations look like with clients to help decide the best strategies possible?
2: Yeah, so a lot of the work that I consult on has to do with an implementation or upgrade of an ETRM software, which stands for energy trading and risk management. Ideally, these these softwares provide front office to back office support, you know, visibility to Various nodes of the deal life cycle and, you know, making sure that personnel throughout that, that life cycle have access to the data they need. This includes, you know, deal capture or price management, logistics and scheduling, position management, valuation and optimization, you know, back office. So like accounting, settlement, regulatory reporting, that kind of stuff. And a lot of the conversations we have as it relates to security, typically. Is just making sure that people with a critical business need have access to the system and those that don't have that need don't have access to you know resources that are unnecessary for them. You know making sure that we have a segregation of duties as well is also critical, and it's a huge part of the conversations we have when configuring environments.
0: Perfect. So with that in mind, then, Glenn and Jeff, let's I guess get more specific on what some of these best practices are that you've, identified as useful across several projects. So even just anecdotally, can you share some of those high level best practices that you're currently telling current clients and also former clients, things that have just really stood out as quality strategies, regardless of client?
1: Yeah, some of the some of the, the things that they go back, right? I mean, it goes back to multi-factor authentication, right? So you've got A lot of people want remote access, VPN type remote access. So we kind of ensure that they are using a multi-factor authentication. So one is they use a password and they have a mobile device that then presents a code for them to remote into a network. And that and that need is also evaluated. Do these people really need to be able to have remote access into the network? Or is it just a, hey, I'd like to have this, right? So we kind of tell them that limit your risk by limiting access to a network. The other things we talk about is, You know, we talked about geo-blocking IP addresses outside the United States on firewalls, but it also comes into play with, you know, making sure you have multiple antivirus scanners. So, you know, you may have one malware type scanner and then you have a secondary antivirus slash malware scanner that you use to kind of balance each other out. Right. I mean, some work and play well with each other, but at least it gives you coverage because if one doesn't find it, the other may. That's been an effective, I think an effective process for us because we implement that kind of of practices when we do these conversions. And it's worked out well for us, especially with cloud managed solutions, which you know, a lot of cloud software out there and in, in itself, that's a that's a risk. But uh, it could be a risk because it's a cloud-based solution. But I think it it works better when it's a cloud-based because somebody else is managing that versus trying to do that in-house would be difficult when you only have one admin that does everything. So there's those pieces. You know, the other thing is user education. That is the biggest one that I stress is, you know, educate your users not to open attachments. They don't know who they came from. Right. I mean, that's the weakest link in any company is somebody opening up an email and then clicking on something. And they basically have a, you know, a rootkit installed or a malware virus that then can then go out and attack the whole network. So user education is usually baked into these, these companies groups so they can actually you know, let people know, don't do these things. And the, in the last thing, I guess the last point I have is, you know, one of the things that we tell companies is you need to have a plan. What if you get attacked? What do you do? Right. I mean, if you know you're getting hacked, do you, who do you call? Right. I mean, so, you know, they call us, they're going to call us because we support them. But, you know, some of this stuff you call the CISA, which is the cybersecurity infrastructure security agency. Or you call the FBI, right? I mean, so not a lot of people know that that's what you do when you have an event. So it, it varies per client, but you know there is a, a long list of things that have been going around now that have become easier to implement because of the news of the day with with Russia, Ukraine, and the Chinese hacking and all that. Whereas before, nobody wanted to pay the money to do it. Mm-hmm. So that's changed for the better. So one thing that Glenn t- talked about that I want to touch
2: on, he mentioned you know. The importance of controlling access you know that the users have and making sure that those who need to have access do you also want to make sure that all ports and protocols that are not business critical are also disabled and are not able to be to access the network
0: so let's apply those best strategies to the current context then where we have not only about a a year's worth of a reminder since the colonial pipeline hack that our critical infrastructure you know, oil and gas infrastructure needs resilient cybersecurity strategies you know, with all of this in mind. And then with the current geopolitical context, what would be a few key things that companies can do now to harden their attack surface to mitigate their cyber attack exposure? Right. Even if it is, you know, a little too late to make those proactive investments, where isn't it and where should they be focusing their reactive investments as well? So, so what I would tell them is if, if you, you kind of, you're going to have to work with what you
1: got. So what I mean by that is you start with your outwardly facing environment. So it's going to be your firewall, anything that somebody can get to from the internet. And that means changing your, you know, it, it's something as simple as changing your password to something extremely long, extremely complex and then make that a different login and password for the rest of your equipment in the environment. So if somebody were to hack that, they can't use that same login and password to get into the rest of your environment. The other things too are, you know, use encryption, encrypt your laptops, encrypt your USB drives. Don't let people use USB drives unless it's absolutely necessary because people leave their laptops in bags in their cars, they get stolen, they lose, you know, they might, their thumb drive might fall in the parking lot, you know, and those usually have documents on them that are sensitive to the environment. Right? So they don't want that information getting out. So just a, a an encrypted drive makes a big difference. Now, if you, you know, that, again, that's kind of a basic thing. If, if, if Russia were to get a, an encrypted drive, I'm sure they had the technology to break that. So typically you're not going to have them coming over and, and walking into an office space. But the other thing I, I stress too is doing some penetration testing in the past is kind of be aware of who should be in your environment physically. So physical security is a big one. Don't hold the door open for people. Don't let them walk in because I can tell you, I, I've walked into more businesses with a suit on. Nobody even challenges you. So some of that is kind of stop people, ask them who they are and make sure that you know what they are doing there. That's some of the basic stuff. Right. And then the other part is wireless access, you know, where, you know, make sure that it's not just easy to get into because somebody doesn't have to be in your space to actually connect a laptop next to your building and then hack in and then get into the network, which, you know, has all your servers and devices on it. So some of that stuff needs to be secured.
2: And to jump off from that, I think, you know, to highlight what Glenn is saying, it's user training is key to identifying uh, and preventing intrusions. It only takes one user to compromise the network. It's important to educate employees on, you know, emerging trends, common cybersecurity risks and vulnerabilities and how they're delivered. You know, things like, like Glenn said, don't hold the door open for someone. Don't walk away from your computer without locking it. You know, small little things that you wouldn't think of that, You know bad actors can use to infiltrate a network um and i think it's also key you know to jump off from there is to establish blame-free reporting for employees and ensure that employees are you know educated on the proper channels to do so and they know who to report to and who
1: to talk to and what to say and the you know the proper protocol for reporting reporting a breach yeah and one additional point too and i bring up is cell phones and mobile devices so It's pretty common for people who have iPhones and iPads and so forth to connect them to the networks. And one of the things we do in power plants, or at least in, in assets, is they only are allowed to connect to a guest network and that only has internet access. Because what happens is, you know, when you have exposures in those phones and iPads, those can be used to hack into the network, right? So that, that is something that, you know, we try to restrict and don't let people on because normally phones aren't accessing servers. They're not accessing resources. They just need internet access and that's all they need. So segregate those off so you don't have the risk of somebody getting in through an exploit in an Apple phone or, you know, an Android or whatever it may be. I think we're we're focusing a lot of like on prevention as well, but I think there's something to be said for, you know,
2: harm reduction and you want to be able to, you know, have an incident response plan in place, you know, understand when, how, and why to reset credentials and revoke permissions. Like ask yourself, how quickly can I isolate critical infrastructure? Mm
0: Now would you say that part of that strategy also includes simplifying security infrastructure? Is that something that you know companies should include in their strategy, or is that even an issue? So here, here's the problem with you know, trying to make security
1: simple. I don't think there that exists, right? Because security in itself is not simple. Yeah. I always use the kind of the analogy of if it's easy for you, it's easy for the hacker. So that's the problem we have is you know people don't want to do MFA, But now with their cell phone being pretty easy, all they have to do is click a button in it and it says allow. If you had to make them type more things in like with tokens and so forth, I think that made it really cumbersome for people to remote in and they just didn't want to use it. So you got a lot of pushback from the business. But today it's gotten a lot better. So in the term of it's being made more simple, but security in itself is a complex task. Because you got to have somebody monitoring, they got to review the logs. They got to know, is it really an attack? And then how do they respond to the attack? And that's seven by 24. And most people don't have people that are around the clock looking for events all night long and all day, right? So, you know, that's, that's kind of the challenge with security is you you have to make an investment and it's not a simple process. And I think it's important to mention that
2: while good security is in- inherently complex and it does have a lot of moving parts regularly auditing systems and, you know, maintaining an accurate digital inventory of what you have installed and where I think is a great way to simplify the picture at least. And, you know, if there's a, if
1: the goal is simplification. Yeah. It, it, one of the point is when you talk about simplifying your infrastructure. So a lot of people use third party application cloud, you know, and you, and you we kind of already know the story of SolarWinds and Kaseya how they were hacked and then the updates were hacked. So when the updates were rolled out, they actually you know, updated everybody who used the software. But one of the things too that I guarantee you a lot of people don't look at is what are the agreements they have with those cloud service providers? You know, most of it's the click to accept and and nobody ever reads it, right? So there's not much, I guess, you know, there's not a penalty for them. They're not going to pay you a significant amount of money if they were to get hacked and then you get breached. Unless you have a really large organization that's got a lot of sway with that that vendor, that's not going to happen. So, you know, just read those agreements and see what they will cover and what they don't cover. And do they get audited every year? That's a big piece, right? So that's one of the things we do look at when clients ask us to review a cloud vendor is, you know, do they have like, you know, an audit by a third party for their security yearly? So that's important.
0: So if simplifying the approach, you know, might be somewhat of a misguided strategy, do you have any recommendations on how to at least simplify the oversight, right, for the companies, right, and, and create a more streamlined ability to gauge all of the endpoints and areas that could come under attack, supervise them, you know, mitigate potential threats, et cetera? How do you simplify at least that that lens? So one of the things I
1: know we've had with clients is they hired a third party because we don't do this, but they hire somebody that really monitors logs and they have log gestures that basically what you do is for the firewalls, the switches, the routers, the servers, all those logs are forwarded into basically an analysis engine to look for attacks. So all the logs are monitored and kept. So if there is an event, you can at least see the history of what happened. In theory, it's supposed to prevent an attack from occurring, but, you know, at least at the bare minimum, you will actually be able to see what they did, you know, from each server, firewall, router, and and kind of see what had happened and how you can probably lock that down the next time. But it just depends on how much damage they're able to do when they get in. But, you know, logging and reviewing is, is a big deal these days. A lot of companies out there are doing it, you know, and again, I just don't know which of them are doing it well enough to say, Yes, they're going to catch 100% of the hacks 100% of the time. I just don't think they can. I think it's it's these hacks get too sophisticated these days to where you can look at everything and see it in traditional log monitors.
2: Instead of maybe the goal being simplification, it should be organization in terms of what Glenn is talking about is, you know, having logging in place, having plans and protocols in place and knowing you know, who to contact and having all this information in multiple locations where everyone can access it in the event of a breach or a cyber incident. I think maybe simplification is not the, right, the metric that we want to use, but maybe just making sure we have
1: all our ducks in a row. Yeah, I think having a plan is important for to simplify your environment of knowing what to do when you do have a breach or a potential breach.
0: So one other piece that I want to get y'all's thoughts on in the larger cybersecurity strategy of today is cybersecurity insurance. I mean, it is a proactive investment, right? But insurance doesn't prevent there from being any cyber attacks. It's more of a reactive solution or something to help mitigate loss to your assets. So I'm curious, as cyber attacks do become more prevalent, more sophisticated, and you know, as we keep the Colonial Pipeline in the back of our heads as an example, how important do you think it is for a company to have cybersecurity insurance or cyber liability insurance? And you know, what are your thoughts on how that plays a role in a larger ecosystem of cybersecurity investments?
1: Yeah. So one of the things I know I've worked with clients on getting, they were getting cyber insurance. What I don't know is how well they pay out, but I do know this is that you know, one of the things that we had to do is go through and, and the company has to kind of attest that they are doing the right thing. So it's not just bias, service, security and policy. And, you know, the, as as for the environment as is, nobody's going to cover that. Right. I mean, if you're not doing patching, you're not and you got old equipment that's not being updated, you're not going to get a policy or the policy is going to be very, very expensive. I would imagine that. And it would be you know, something they wouldn't do. So what we've had to help the client with is kind of make sure they got a patching strategy. They've got backups, you know, and they're kind of signing off that yes, all these things are being done daily, like daily backups, you're doing monthly patching, you know, you're doing, you know, quarterly reviews of firewalls, unless there's an urgent update. So they kind of have to kind of write out that here's everything we do. And I think based on that is what they get their policy based on, and it comes out with a cost. But I think some of the important things, the reason why some of these companies are buying this is it does protect them with, you know, public relations. I think it limits their lawsuits if they get if they get sued over a breach. So I think it it is like you know like I it says, it's an insurance policy. But you know again it's 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 not something that it's just an entire wrapper that this is what we need and we're covered. You know costs are based on risk. You know lots of customers, you know with you know credit card data and all that. I think going to pay higher premiums. And and this is something I got off the internet. It's, you know, because I've never seen a cost. I just work with the clients. You know, the internet saying it's about $1,500 per year for $1 million coverage with a $10,000 deductible. And, and I think that seems cheap to me. So maybe they're just buying it from a cheap insurance point of view. But again, the ransomware really comes into play is, you know, are you going to pay to decrypt your data? Is that really the right approach? You know, I've heard, and this is just, my rumor had it is that a lot of companies weren't or the insurance companies weren't gonna cover ransomware payments. But again, you know, you don't know what happens behind the scenes because a lot of time this is not public knowledge. I mean one other one other point too, and this is this is coming off of a government webpage. But you know, this is the thing is that, you know, they said, what you know, what should your cyber insurance policy cover? You know, and they once they, they talk about make sure it covers data breaches like incidents involving theft of personal information you know, cyber attacks on your data held by your vendors and third parties, right? And then cyber attacks that occur anywhere in the world, not just in the United States, if you're an international company, you know, and the other thing that I think that really kind of comes key down to here and probably why a lot of clients are looking at this is that some of these cyber insurance providers will defend you in a lawsuit or a regulatory investigation, you know, if there's an issue where, you know, they had a breach and somebody's customer data got leaked out or or sensitive data got on the internet. So I think it really is an insurance policy in the perfect sense of people are buying it because it's it's probably cheaper than having, not having it at all. But again, I don't know really when you have a breach, how much they really cover. And and that will be interesting to see is if if there's anything that comes out on these cyber insurance companies, are they actually doing what they say they're going to do, or are there a lot of exclusions that kind of eliminate well, you didn't do what you signed off on and therefore we're not covering it. So that's yet to be determined.
2: And there also was this trend of, you know, companies who would get who would be the victim of ransomware would just end it was just cheaper just to end up just paying the ransomware and just to get the data back. And it'll be
1: interesting to see how this trend is uh, affects that. Yeah. And I think there's a lot of companies that have been hit and have never made a public notice because you know, I think a lot, of, especially with the ransomware attacks, they're they're in it for money. So if you're paying them, and they they will decrypt your data, and I, I don't, I just don't think they let a lot of that public information out. But that's not the right message to be sending out. You know, for hackers, and then you're going to keep doing it. Key takeaway is that it's not a set it and forget it type deal. You're not you're not completely
2: covered, and you know you can forget about cybersecurity. You still have to be acting in good yep. faith and you know
1: maintaining good practice, good cybersecurity yep. hygiene. So if a company is looking for cyber insurance, what I would recommend they do is look at the, the government resources out there about, you know, what it should cover, you know, and, and make sure that the wording in your policies include the, you know, the language that the government is saying, here's what it should include and make sure it does. You know, I like, again, I'm not an expert on the insurance side of this, but you know, we, uh, we do the side of making sure we sign off that we are doing these activities that are then signed off in a cyber insurance policy. But as far as the policies themselves, that's something the companies really need to review with their legal and their internal groups.
0: All right. I think with that, we'll go ahead and wrap up the conversation. I think this has been a good touch point and refocus on strategies and you know new opportunities to build resiliency and also reactive safety nets for potential cyber attacks in the larger energy industry and specifically the oil and gas sector. So thank you again, Glenn and Jeff, for your insights so far. I'll open it up to final thoughts. Anything you want to leave our audience with here before we close, whether that's strategic advice, sort of a lay of the land for what you see on the horizon, et cetera.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, a lot of it just goes back to, you know, the industry standards of, of IT best practice, right? So there's many baseline items that should be done and you know, doing on, a, on an active basis. Make sure that when an employee leaves the company, you're turning off their account you know as the case was with with the colonial pipeline issue making sure that patch management is done on a regular basis you know backups 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 there's a mo- one of the most important things you do is make sure your backups are being done daily and those are encrypted and kept somewhere offsite so in case there is an issue you can recover the data you know that and just is monitoring you know your your environment for any strange activities and you know and test your software That is one of the things that that i see a lot is people go out and buy an antivirus they put it in and they never test it so they think it's working but you know unless you go to these sites there's test sites out there you go out there you hit these sites and it says hey it's blocked you know at least that gives you some comfort that it did the right thing and i've seen other software you implement and it doesn't even block the site i'm like is this really working or not you know and don't be afraid to have multiple vendors i mean you may be paying double for some of the software but it's not that expensive And it gives you coverage that if one vendor doesn't catch it, the other one might. So, you know, basics, just go back to the basics of security and make sure that you're following best practice in the industry. And I think it will help keep you safer.
2: Yeah. I just think it's, uh, it's important to remember to stay vigilant. You know, there, it's not just, there's not one simple magic solution that will, you know, harden your defenses against a cyber attack. It's important to, you know, not only implement a good firewall, but you know, to ma- make sure that you're vetting your third-party vendors, or you are limiting VPN connections to only users who need it, or you know, and establishing an upper limit for login attempts on those on those connections, and you know, place any resource with open desktop protocols, you know, behind a firewall, and make sure that there is a VPN connection required to access that resource. You know, things like that, because if you're doing one thing. Let, Now, let's say that you think of your system as a castle, you know, it's you, you can, you can build high walls, but someone can dig under them or someone can poison your water supply or, you know, someone could even send a spy into your castle and you've got to make sure that the things that are within the castle are, you know, siloed and protected, even if there is, you know, a breach. So there are multiple different ways and threat actors are innovating every day to get into your system. So it's important to stay vigilant.
0: And I think with that strategic advice, we'll go ahead and wrap up. So thank you again to the two of you for your perspectives today. We've been chatting again for our audience with Glenn Hartfield. He's a principal at OPPORTUNE and Jeff Yutt, process and technology consultant at OPPORTUNE. Glenn, Jeff, if folks want to get in touch with you, they want to pick your brain a little bit more on strategies, where can we point them? Point them to the webpage and get in touch with us. Perfect. Easy enough. All right, Glenn, Jeff, thank you so much for your time today on the podcast. I'm looking forward to chatting again soon. And uh, it doesn't seem like the cybersecurity conversation is going to uh, really wrap up anytime soon either. So I'm sure we'll have some follow-ups. So thanks again, and we'll chat soon. All right. Thanks, Daniel. Thanks, Dan. And thank you everyone for tuning in to another episode of E2B, Energy to Business, an opportune podcast. If you like what you heard today and you want some previous episodes, or you want to make sure that you're all caught up on future drops, uh, make sure that you're subscribing on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. But for more information about the company, solutions and services, and more information on some of the topics we broke down today, including some very poignant advice you can find blogs commentary and more research on our site opportune.com again that's opportune.com i'm your host daniel litwin the voice of b2b and we'll catch you on the next episode of e2b energy to business